For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. A note to our listeners. In the first 15 minutes, this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. Ken Starr sent his report to Congress on September 9th, 1998. More than four years had passed since the start of his investigation into the Clintons. The Office of Independent Counsel submitted a referral to the House of Representatives containing substantial and credible information that may constitute grounds for impeachment of the President of the United States. Along with the report itself, Starr sent over 36 boxes of raw investigative material, one set of 18 boxes for the Democrats, and another set of 18 for the Republicans. Two copies of each piece of evidence. Hundreds of pages that are the culmination of four years of a controversial investigation by the independent counsel. The boxes were filled with grand jury testimony, transcripts of closed-door interviews, and internal memos prepared by prosecutors. They were transported in a pair of white vans to the House of Representatives, where they were locked in a room in the Ford office building. For now, the boxes would only be accessible to the House Judiciary Committee, the 37-member body that would decide whether to propose articles of impeachment to the full House. The Office of Independent Counsel is not going to make any public statement about the contents of the referral. We will not be uh, discussing it publicly. The following weekend, a lawyer named Abby Lowell would begin going through the material page by page. Lowell had been waiting for this moment since the spring, when he'd been recruited by the Congressional Democrats, led by Dick Gephardt in the House, and Tom Daschle in the Senate, just in case impeachment became a real threat. And it was Dick Gephardt who said to me that he and Tom Daschle understood me and the staff were going to get access to the material in a few hours. He understood we would be working through the weekend, and he was hoping we would be able to come and have a meeting that next Monday with him and them and basically tell them whether or not we as a collective thought the president of the United States had committed an impeachable offense and I remember him saying words to the effect that if we came to that conclusion and they agreed with it, I needed to remember that it would be he and Tom 
who walked up Pennsylvania Avenue and told the president that he had to resign. And so Lowell sprang into action. When we spoke earlier this year, he described his team's exploration of the evidence as an earnest effort, a hunt for relevant facts combined with a good faith analysis of the law and the Constitution. People think that from second one, the Democrats in Congress were aligned with the president, and that's not true. Lowell spent 48 nearly sleepless hours reading, sorting, and taking notes on Ken Starr's evidence. At the end of this marathon session, he reached a firm conclusion. That first, the president of the United States committed conduct that was not anywhere close to what we expect a president of the United States to do. But I did not see his conduct as violating, with proof beyond reasonable doubt, any of the criminal statutes that address the issue of obstruction or perjury. And I did not see an abuse of power that would have risen to an impeachable offense. And I'd like to think that I would have come to those conclusions no matter what side hired me. But it's easy to say 20 years later, I just think that's the case. Lowell, who now represents Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in matters related to the Mueller investigation, informed Gephardt of his analysis. After hearing it, the House Minority Leader prepared for battle. If the Republicans wanted Clinton out of office, they were going to have to fight for it. Here's Gephardt warning against the drawn-out impeachment process about a month after the Star Report landed. If we stay here for three, six, nine, twelve months, two years in suspended animation while we go over every charge that's out there, we will hurt our country and our people and our children. What Gephardt didn't know was that buried deep within the thousands of pages that Ken Starr had sent to Congress was a reference to something explosive. An interview conducted by the FBI with the woman who claimed that Bill Clinton had sexually assaulted her. This allegation did not appear anywhere in the Star Report. It only came up in an appendix where it was cited in a footnote attached to a parenthetical. The woman was identified only as Jane Doe number 5. We obviously found it at some point, but I can't honestly remember whether it was that weekend or not. My instinct was it's not. My instinct was that that first bit of time was really focused around the referral about which it was made and the mainstream issues that they addressed. Since Starr himself had concluded that this accusation was not relevant to the case for impeachment, Lowell figured his time was better spent on other material. Obviously, one pours through the deposition and grand jury transcript of President Clinton. One pours through the interview memoranda of Monica Lewinsky, and one pours through the documents that were being exchanged about her getting a job, there was neither time, staff, inclination, or a view that we needed to get much beyond that in that beginning of time. Months later, Jane Doe Number 5's allegation would become a tremor rumbling beneath Congress and the White House as Republicans and Democrats learned her story and even her name, Juanita Broderick. How did politicians, journalists, and regular people process Broderick's claim that the president was not just an adulterer, but a violent criminal. How did it become part of the impeachment process? And what does it mean that Broderick's story has never really become a part of Bill Clinton's? This is the season finale of Slow Burn. I'm your host, Leon Nafok. All our reporting found things that tended to support her story, not undermine it. Someone is going to get this woman on the record saying what this 
president did to her years ago. How do you look at the person who's your president of the United States and think that he's capable of something like that? Episode 8, Move On. 